Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our first episode of 2023. I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, the platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast, and Nokia, the gold sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast. You know, over the holidays, the head of CTIA wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post arguing that wireless companies should get an equal shot at the $42.45 billion NTIB funding, as opposed to this money being invested in building out the fixed network. I'd like to remind CTIA that B funding is for broadband critical infrastructure, and NTI is prioritizing fiber as fiber provides the critical infrastructure for wireless. You know, the first rule of wireless is to get the signal out of the air and into the ground at the first available point. Matter of fact, 80% of all wireless calls and wireless data traffic goes over the fixed network, 80%. And anyone who has a smartphone can see that their wireless traffic does a Wi-Fi offload whenever possible. In short, fiber is the critical infrastructure for wireless. You know, a lot of drama is underway on the Hill as the House convened yesterday without electing a speaker. The last time the speaker vote went multiple vote rounds was in 1923, a century ago. Until a speaker is elected, the newly elected members of Congress cannot be sworn in and legislative business cannot move ahead in the House and will also impact the Senate. That said, the Senate convened yesterday and new senators were sworn in. They have now recessed until January 23rd. On the FCC front, the White House renominated Gigi Soam to fill the fifth FCC commissioner slot. You know, for the past year, the FCC has been operating with just four commissioners, two Democrats and two Republicans. Hopefully we'll be able to get all five commissioner seats filled this year. Before we get started, I'd also like to remind everyone that our first regional Fiber Connect workshop is just around the corner and will be held in Raleigh, North Carolina on Tuesday, February 7th. Registration is now open. We hope you'll be able to join us. That brings us to today's Fire for Breakfast session with Steve Selenrek, the president of Selenrek Construction, to discuss successful broadband projects include damage prevention. Last week on Fire for Breakfast, we heard from FBA's strategic research partner, Mike Render, the CEO and principal analyst at RVA, who shared with us the new provider survey results reveal that fiber broadband accelerated in 2022. So fiber deployment hit a record last year and deployment continues to accelerate. Today on Fiber for Breakfast, our guest is Steve Selenrek, the president of Selenrek Construction to discuss successful broadband projects include damage prevention. Steve is the owner and president of Selenrek Construction in Jonesburg, Missouri. He is also the owner of Utilisource and Selenrek Energy. Mr. Selenrek is a current member and past president of PCCA, the Power and Communications Contractors Association. He is currently on the board of directors of the Common um, Ground Alliance, 
specializing in engineering design. And, the, and he's also at the Association of General Contractors, AGC of Missouri, chairing the infrastructure division. So welcome, Steve. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go and we'll work them into the Q&A at the end. With that, I'd like to get things started and I'll turn it over to Steve. Good morning, Gary. Yeah, I have, uh, our family's been in this business since 1979 and over the years has developed and changed the way that things have moved. But we placed our first fiber in 1981 at the nuclear plant here in Missouri. So that's one of our claims to fame in Missouri. We placed the first fiber. Got directional drilling in 1990. So we've got over 30 years of directional drilling experience. Uh, we work on long haul, middle mile, and fiber of the home projects throughout the Midwest. In 2015, we were asked to get into locating business, doing contract locates. We currently have 60 people plus doing that a day. And then we were asked in 2016 to get in the engineering business. So our things have changed over the years. So I've got a full field of projects from start to finish now, from feasibility to sustainability, one end to the other. The standard broadband stuff for developing a project. I'm going to go through these and we'll be able to discuss. First is finding the opportunity. We live in these areas. We know the areas. Uh, we do some market assessments. People do feasibility studies. They look at it. And then once they figure out where they want to build, and these projects are multi-million dollar projects, as we all know, and we start developing the fund framework, you know, the funding, doing marketing, more market assessment. Marketing is, I've learned more and more about it over the years, that that's a very big key to making this thing work. And by marketing, people want to see you come. They want to see you build their projects. Then you got to build the network. Engineering and permitting. This is where we need to start thinking about how we need to uh, build a project. Is it going to be aerial, underground? Is it a plow project? Is it a bore project? What are we going to be doing? With that, uh, we got to look at the procurement of labor and materials. I know workforce is a big issue everybody has seen. We are seeing our clients try to talk to us about two, three, four, five-year projects. And of course, as contractors, we like seeing those, but it is also locking up our workforce and we can only hire so many people. On top of that, it's not only the people is we can't get the equipment that we always want. See, so if we can even get more people, I don't think we can get the more equipment that we need to be able to expand our business the way we want. So be sure to talk to your uh, contractors or how you're gonna provide your labor and get a plan on that very early in the process. The next one's material. I think the network operators have been great on material. Uh, we are seeing people have lots of fiber on the ground. And, you know, I'm starting to hear about 2024 orders. The 2023 orders are pretty well done. 2024 orders, we need to be thinking about that. The speed money that Gary just talked about, the earliest you're going to see it start to be deployed, I believe, will be the first part of 2024. With that, uh, make sure you have that your fiber locked up, but also start looking at your handholds, your splice cases. We're starting to see splice cases get pushed out and have issues there, pedestals, um, all the other prop, uh, small pieces that go into your project that can hold up a project. It's all critical, it's as critical as fiber, but you want to make sure you have all those materials as well. And then you get your construction, your splicing. You go out, you do the work, do the work safely. And we need to talk about uh, getting your locates done, and then get your construction placed and your splicing. 
And on top of that, the install in the home, we go in the homeowner's place, install, get them hooked up, and then you have to protect your investment locates the sustainability. During all this process, the thing that I think that gets lost is damage prevention. And that's really what I want to hit on today. You get, you're finding your opportunity and you need to understand and mitigate your risk when you find an opportunity. And what I mean by that is look and see who else is built there. Is, uh, are you gonna be dealing with one utility? Maybe it's just water and sewer you're dealing with. Maybe everything else is in the air. Maybe you're putting your fiber in the air, so you're gonna be doing less underground. If you do do the overhead, you need to think about where you're building that overhead. Is there a lot of tree trimming involved? That kind of thing. And then also, if you've got a power company that's not doing their tree trimming, you're probably gonna have more outages. I know Gary mentioned a question on here about uh, burn power or about power lines coming down and then burning the fiber. That's generally a tree trimming issue more than anything. So you need to understand and mitigate your risks, see what you're gonna have. Can you go back to this previous slide? I'm sorry. You develop your framework and you gotta have insurance of your investors in your community. I think you need to step into that early, talk and th start thinking about your damage prevention at that time. And so whoever's doing the investing in the project, whether it's government funded or now you see my venture capitalist and banks get involved in these things, they need to understand that it's gonna be safely done and you're gonna worry about the community. The community also needs to understand. When you're building the network, there's no, without a doubt, your safest contractors will build it faster because you won't have the holdups. So be looking at that. You'll build it faster, safer, more efficient while you're building the network. The last one is your sustainability of keeping your customers up and working, which having a good locate and having that done like it needs to be, you'll have a better customer experience, better customer experience, your customers start talking to each other and they start talking to their neighbors and you get more signups. So integrating damage prevention in your project. Success is definitely in the details on this. Start by knowing the dig laws that govern your project areas, when and how they are enforced. Each state has nuances that are different. Uh, I know working in Missouri is a little different than working in Illinois. Working in Missouri and Illinois is different than Iowa. You're gonna have to look at each one of these and how they work and how they enforce. It's gonna add time to your project and figuring out how to do it. On top of that, municipalities are getting more and more into regulations. So be sure to understand all those regulations and how many crews are allowed in an area. We are on one project now, and it's a town of about 30,000 people, and they will not allow more than 10 drill crews at a time. We are on another one that only allows us to have 20,000 feet of permits at a time. So you can imagine it's slowing down projects. So you gotta understand that and how it works. Learn what resources are available from the existing owners. You gotta know how many locators they have. And when we're talking about existing facility owners, I'm talking about your water, sewer, gas, electric, the other uh, broadband providers in the area. So you need to understand what they have resources for locating. See if they have maps. We've had projects that allow us to, cities that allow us to have the water and sewer maps where our guys can look and see the locate's not done, they'll reach back out. You also want community community outreach during this process, that'll help you uh, not have as much issues. A lot of times owners want to keep it quiet and try to go in an area unannounced and because they're worried about competition. The problem with this is when you show up in a community and all of a sudden you go from zero dig crews to maybe 20 to 25, that sudden presence 
the cities will pull back, or rail pull back, they'll slow it down and make the project more expensive. The uh, ISP must be transparent with potential investors who value the, value the fund at competitive advantage. Damage prevention can be a competitive advantage. We are seeing that in several of our projects that we're working. And by doing that, we are able to make the project go faster, get more footage in the ground with the same amount of crews. So we're tr trying to deal with the labor market. Also keep in mind that damage prevention is your marketing tool. The employees on the job are the first ones to make contact with your customers or your potential customers. If you have water strikes, tearing up concrete, if you have electrical strikes, God forbid a natural gas strike, we have had those on our project. Your people get scared of it, they do not want you there at that time. That's not what you need for a good successful project. You want those guys to be on the job. You want them to be carrying flyers from you. You want them to be able to talk about what they're building for you. They don't need to be complete salesmen. They just know who they're working for. And, you know, if they provide good service, that's all you need to have them for. It can also use a good contract with a good safety department, safety culture. They will have their employees trained on damage prevention practices and will engage with you to learn, to read and learn them as well. They want a, a good contractor will actually bring safety into the meeting very, very early. If they don't do that, you probably ought to question. Like you said, the success in the details, have dedicated resources in your team that'll understand 811. And you also want to make sure that your contractor is not making unnecessary requests. And by doing so, what it'll do is jam up the system. And I know contractors, they all think, well, I gotta have more and more called in to get this done, make sure you don't do it that way. It really creates a log jam. I'm speaking on the side of our locate group now. Better to work with your local locator resources so you do not overwhelm the system. If you do, an overwhelmed system on the locates can hold up your project as much as weather or even worse. Have dedicated representation in the field responsible for clearing the 811 process. By doing so, what you have doing is you've got to go to the field, you have one person go to the field and see if your locates are done, rather than a whole crew show up and lose an entire day of drilling. We have a project here in Missouri that had 157 non-locators where they didn't show up, no show locates, in one week. We had 37 drills running on that job and not one drill shut down. The reason why is because the process was in place to check the locates ahead of time. They were calling in those no-show locates and making them happen. So you want that person going to go in there and look at it. Ensure, ensure your contractors are calling in four to five days in advance. I know a lot of locates are two days. Give that locator some time. What if he has an unmarked or an unlocatable uh, gas or unlocatable water that they're having to go off measurements and they're trying to measure off street curbs and get your marks like that? Be sure to work with them on that. Be sure, rip, uh, be sure your representation and your crews are documenting job sites. Do this with video and pictures. There's several apps out on the out there that can do it. You want to do this because you don't want to pay for something that you didn't do. You also want to be sure when there is a damage utility, you can find a root cause of that and be able to defend your project. Uh, the act of, doc, of documenting, reviewing the known obstacles with the crew and the foreman will make near misses and damages less likely. Keep in mind that these pictures and documentation and the condition of lawns, concrete, and the area in general 
you don't want to have to buy a driveway that's not your fault. They can run up a project. We've seen that happen. You also don't want to have to pay a bill. You don't want your contractors to be out there getting stuck with bill after bill because you may not pay for it on this project. It'll be on the next one. It'll get factored in. You don't want that. Report your issues to 811 centers and the Common Ground Alliance and their database. I really think that reporting should be written into every contract as well as every contract should be following the CGA best practices. That should be in there. Your data is critical in helping identify great solutions that will make future projects less expensive to build. Improve your ability to protect existing plant and keep the community safer and more satisfied. We got people out there every day that are looking at these projects and we need to be mapping, documenting, and keeping track of them. So it's a big deal. In summary, damage prevention is about identifying the risk, decreasing your project cost, improving your contract or improving your customer satisfaction, which increases your network profitability. It'll outperform your competition. If you're looking at this, most others aren't and need to be. And you want to keep that community safer. No one wants to have a problem on a job site where a house explodes or you have an injury on a job site. For a successful project, we have to keep this from happening. So with that, Gary, that's what damage prevention is on a very high level. We can talk hours and get down in the nitty gritty on it. Well, Steve, yeah, thanks so much. So um, I guess first question for you is, I mean, safety seems to be paramount in your business. Um, yes. How do you communicate or how do uh, contractors communicate to service providers on your safety record? I mean, is that part of the bid process? And Some ask about it, some don't. Uh, we actually, when we go to a pre-bid or pre-construction meetings, we bring our safety team in. We also have a uh, committee that works here from the field of about 17 or 18 people at any given time. And they are actually all field employees, non-management and they'll bring their ideas to the table for the safety. It is paramount, I mean, trying to do the soft dig approach and making sure you don't have the issues. What you don't want to have happen is, like I said, we've had a house explosion on a project. It wasn't our cruise, but it was on a project of ours. And after that, it is hard for a crew to walk into a neighborhood and they're going, are you going to blow up my house? And the fiber world is getting a bad wrap on that if you look at it. I mean, normally when there is a problem, it's a fiber crew placing fiber and we have a gas hit and you see it every week. Some of that, I'm, what I'm saying though is a lot of that is not the fault of the contractor, not the fault of the broadband provider. It's just what's going on. So um, there had a lot of um, questions about um, non-compliant locators, um, like you mentioned earlier, are you, know, are you willing to go ahead and do the work at some point? And what the, this person was saying is they found in a lot of projects that, um, you know, that Spectrum and ATT just refused to locate their projects. Are, are you guys running into issues like that? And how do you get around so, that? So what we do is before we even start a project, we get a, we invite all the, uh, we try to get work with our ISP, our customer. And we want to invite every other utility to the table, whoever's doing their locate, whether it's contract locating, they're doing it in the house get them and get weekly calls set up or bi-weekly at minimum and discuss these issues. No, we won't dig if we know there's something there in Missouri, it's illegal to do so. You're breaking the law and you're 100% at fault. So what you have to look at on doing such a thing is 
make sure you're doing your non-locate tickets. Most contractors don't turn those in because they want to work with the locator and say, all right, hey, I'll give you an extra day. If you're not the one being the greasy, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you've got to get those turned in. Plus, we need the data as going forward. On our projects, you know, we were seeing, we had a firm here in, in Missouri that said they were hitting 98% of their locates on time. On our projects, they're more like 60. They weren't getting reported. So that's part of the contractor issues. And, but no, you can't, in Missouri, you cannot do without that. I know a lot, if you know the utilities there, even though it's not located, you're still at fault. So you just got to work with that locator and get that figured out. You also, you know, try to get your, uh, the enforcement party involved, whether it's a board enforcement or the attorney general. Yeah, so one of the questions came in, are, are, can using a network build automation software platform help you control costs and errors made in the field? Yes, we use one in-house that we're developing right now, and it does work. Uh, it works on keeping track of where your locates are and also keeping track of if the locates are good. We we're actually doing that right now. The other thing that you can do is uh, there's some apps out there for grabbing the locates and, and taking pictures of them, documenting them. I would suggest you do that and also map where your locates are good and where they're bad because you've got you know, 35 to 40 field crews and you've got two or three guys trying to bounce those guys around. You want to make sure you get good locates. Okay, so one of the questions here is, Many funding programs, including ReConnect and state programs funded by ARPA and B, include requirements touching on things like climate resiliency, as well as diversity, recruitment, and training by contractors and subcontractors. How can the construction um, contractors, what can they do to help their clients make the funding applications more successful in those categories? Well, that comes down to human resource issue and developing other partnerships underneath you if you're looking at diversified diversification. Higher diversity, you know, you got to be open to that, and we all are. I don't know any contractor that's not. The, uh, you know, part of the problem is some of these contractors come from areas that just, or, you know, they're not, they're very rural areas, I'll just put it that way. Now, that being said, the contractors are constantly working on that as well. These contractors are more, these, these contracts have gotten big enough, but these contractors are also bigger, more sophisticated, so they can help you. Now, you mentioned, um, you know, one of the things that you face is shortage of um, labor and also equipment availability and lead times on materials, you know, whether it's fiber, um, handholds and so forth. Um, so what are, what are you seeing? I mean, as far as equipment, what, what equipment do people need to keep an eye on and what is the hardest thing to get? If you think about it, there's only about 2,000 war machines built a year. So that, that's a big one. Cable plows are another big one out there right now. We're seeing the used market demand is going skyrocket for that kind of equipment. The, uh, your con if you have a contractor telling you that they can go out and get the equipment they need, I would not trust that. You're looking for your bigger, the only contractor's gonna be able to say that's your bigger, more sophisticated contractors that have very long-term relationships with the manufacturers and their dealerships. Most of them are on allotment right now and they're fighting that battle. The other thing, uh, you know, it's not only just the field equipment like that, it's getting trucks. Buying a Ford pickup isn't the easiest thing to do right now. Buying a Chevrolet, any brand you're looking at. I'm not trying to throw any one brand under the, under the wheel here, it's just the way it is. So, but getting the people is also an issue. Uh, we deal a lot with the uh, State Technical College here in Missouri. They've got about 150, 
about 225 to 230 individuals in, in the workforce every year. And dealing with our interns, you can add some there. And then just trying to get people to relocate into our industry. It's driving cost up. Labor is definitely going to drive cost up in this market. What about fiber? Do you have trouble on getting fiber? And is there any particular fiber that's harder than others, like loose tube? Or as far as our customers, we're seeing most of our customers, we used to supply about 80% of the fiber that we placed. When fiber started getting tougher a couple of years ago, we saw our, our customers start buying fiber direct. So right now our customers are very well, they have a lot of fiber in stock and most of this year's projects are sitting on the ground. Now what I'm hearing from another supplier is, and one of my distributors, is they're looking at 2024 and they're going around to my clients talking about what they should be doing for 2024. So if you're not looking out at least a year and that's on equipment, that's on it, you know, and then on material and fiber, handholds, all the rest of it. If you don't have clients that are looking out that far, contractors need to be worried about am I partnering with the right client? Because contractors have to look at this too, Gary. You're, you know, the uh, owners are looking at who do we want to partner with as a contractor. The contractors are turning around going, who do I want to partner with as an owner that I know is going to be able to keep my crews moving forward? Because the last thing a contractor can have happen in this is be locked into a contract if he's not getting material on. And then one of our good friends from Ohio is asking, can you explain the need for transparency among the stakeholders and who are the stakeholders? Are we are we talking about the other uh, utilities is what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think so. Just everybody in your ecosystem that you have to coordinate with to make sure that you have. Um, on good locates is, yeah. that would be, you know, you get your water and your sewer, which is generally municipality or district. You're gonna have your electrics who either a co-op or an IOU and or municipality there. You're going to have your gas companies who sometimes can be municipality most most time are IOUs on that. And then your you, the other problem is you've got to be able to get locates and you said it earlier from your other providers that are providing service in that area, which is the existing cable TV or telecom if you're doing an overbuild. And sometimes that becomes a little less nice for the talk. The other providers will you know, they understand that you're doing a business like they are. Competition is always interesting. It's always interesting to see how they're going to react to that. Now, the law says they have to. So you've got to fall back to that. All right. This sounds like a bad experience here. Is this, How do you prevent against 10 engineers and one guy with a shovel driving up costs because they think they can? Um, you know, that, that how do you... The owner would have to be hire the right engineering firm because you the engineers are and we are an engineering firm as well i'm just going to put that out there so when we look at a project we also know that when the engineers are writing a project out and they're taking their build notes they don't have existing locates so when you do get the existing locates if you got to switch sides of the road to have a drafter switch sides of the road is still cheaper than have a contractor battle down through six utilities on one side of the road and nothing on the and maybe one utility on the other. So the secret is is making sure everybody knows they're on the same team. Now, 20 years ago when I first got in this business, it felt like the engineering and the contractors were fighting all the time. And you had contractors working under unit based, and you had engineers working under hourly. The good engineers, even though if they're working under hourly, understand that it's a team process and that we got to get this project as fast as we can. 
Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right, last question is, what states in the Midwest uh, will you work? Oh, we're in Missouri, Illinois, uh, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas. Now that's on the uh, construction side. On the engineering side, we're working in east to west coast right now. So we got projects east coast to west coast. Well, Steve, first of all, I just want to thank you for everything you do for the industry. I'm always so amazed at how deep, you know, with your personal commitment into training and workforce development and to all the different committees you serve on to really appreciate you, you know, taking our industry forward. So thank you for that and really appreciate PCA's partnership with FBA. Um, and then I want to thank everybody for joining us. I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're going to be discussing the SEC's broadband data collection now and later, the challenges of round two and what happens after with Tammy Caroline, the senior analyst at Vantage Point. And she's going to advise on the immediate steps for challenges, amendments, and explain the timelines and offer clarity and guidance for the next round of broadband data collection filing. So you're not going to want to miss that. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you guys next week.